If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. <laughs> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From the glories of Mycenae to the life of a modern European nation, Professor Roderick Beaton's new book, The Greeks, A Global History, charts the 4,000-year history of a people. In conversation with BBC History Magazine editor Rob Attar, on today's podcast, he examines some of the key moments in this journey and describes the Greeks' astonishing legacy on the rest of the world. I guess we should begin with a rather basic but important question, which is what do you or what do we mean by Greeks in this context? My starting point in this book is the Greek language, because it's a remarkable fact that Greek is one of only three languages still in regular daily use in the world today that has a continuous record of use in speech and writing that goes back for more than 3,000 years. And there are different ways in which the idea of Greeks or even Greece as a place can be understood or defined. But it's quite important for the approach I was taking in this book, that I started with the fact of the Greek language. And I say that because Greeks today are, with very good reason, 
immensely proud of their long heritage. And in Greek education, there's a well a well-known tradition of celebrating the Greek nation as having a very long history. And I didn't want to start with the nation as a given, because I think nations belong to that category of human creations that really are built up by history. They're the product of history. They're not givens that we start out with. So I wanted to see how, with this immensely long tradition of the language, I could actually look at the ways in which the people who've spoken that language have defined themselves, if you like, the equivalent of a modern nation at many different times in the historical past, and kind of see what they came up with. And I suppose it is also quite complicated when we're talking about Greece to say what Greece is, because it wouldn't have been the same place throughout history, would it? Well, exactly. You see, there's an enormous um, potential for confusion because for the last 200 years, Greece has existed as a, as a nation, as a state on the map. It's had frontiers. They've actually changed quite a lot in those 200 years, but it's been there. It's something you can see. It's a place you can visit. You get a stamp on your passport. Um, so in that sense, you know what you're talking about. But Greeks as a people and the language they speak, have been around for enormously much longer than the Greek state has existed. And not everyone, I think, fully appreciates this, but Greece as a state, as a place that exists on a political map, is only 200 years old. Indeed, it's 200 years old this very year, since it was 1821, when the Greek speakers, the Orthodox Christians of the Ottoman Empire, rose up against the Muslim Turkish rulers and created Greece as an independent European state, as it is today. But the Greeks have been around for vastly longer than that. And the places where they've lived, at times when they were making history at various times, have been actually not the same ones. It's true that, so far as we know, the Greek language started out in the southern part of the mainland and islands that today are part of Greece. But during ancient times, Greeks set up settlements all around the Mediterranean and the Black Sea in their own time, they got it. They were always getting on ships, and they went just about everywhere it was possible to go. Later, Alexander the Great, who was a Greek-speaking king of Macedonia, conquered the whole of the Middle East as far as the uh, northwest India and much of Pakistan today. And all those lands became part of the Greek-speaking world. Those Greek speakers then became part of the, you know, one of the world's greatest empires, the Roman Empire. In the Middle Ages, the successor to the Roman Empire was an empire of uh, Eastern Christians who followed the Orthodox branch of Christianity. The capital of their empire was the city they called Constantinople. It still has that name, though officially it is now the Turkish city of Istanbul. And actually the heartland for about a thousand years of what we call the Byzantine Empire with its capital at Constantinople wasn't Greece at all, it was what is now Turkey, the subcontinent known as Asia Minor or Anatolia. And then again, in modern times, 
Greeks have traveled everywhere on the world. They've established communities um, on every one of the world's inhabited continents. So you can hear Greek spoken, you can buy Greek food, um, you can buy a Greek newspaper in South Africa, in Australia, in many cities in America, in some of the parts of Russia and the former um, satellite republics of the Soviet Union, for example. So Greek culture has really spread right around the world. It's not something you can pin down or narrow down to the bounds of the land we call Greece. And you've just highlighted a really long and interesting history of Greek civilization and culture and how it spread around the world. Do you think that sometimes the emphasis on classical Greece means that some of these other epochs are overshadowed? Well, I actually, to be honest, I rather do. But as soon as I say that, I want to be very clear that I'm not knocking the achievements of the classical Greeks of the civilization that reached its peak some 2,500 years ago, particularly in the city-states of Athens and Sparta, because it's absolutely true that that is the bedrock on which the whole of broadly conceived Western society, civilization, the arts, the sciences, as we know all of these things, that's the bedrock on which it's all based. So I'm taking that as a given, and I wouldn't want anyone to think that by talking about the other bits of the long story, that I'm undervaluing that achievement. But the Greeks that actually gave us all that are people who lived during quite a short period of a very long history, a period of between one and 200 years at the most. And it also wasn't actually a period in which even those Greeks to whom we do and we really do owe so much, even they didn't get everything right. Their attitudes to women were pretty horrible by our standards. It's a well-known fact that like most ancient societies, their society was economically founded on the institution of slavery. And even a great philosopher of the stature of Aristotle, who did so much to define humanity and ethics, seems to have accepted it as part of his world, that human beings could be bought and sold and put to work by other human beings. And the other things that the ancient Greeks, by our standards, didn't get right, is they never managed to unite politically. They their society was built on quite small city-states. And what we now call politics is really the direct descendant of the complex and often very democratic ways in which they worked out how to organise those city-states internally. But the one thing politically that the ancient Greeks never managed to get right was to invent the equivalent of what we call diplomacy or international relations. The Greek city-states spent most of their time when they weren't writing great books of philosophy and science. Their young men were out on the battlefield killing each other and indeed taking other young men from other Greek cities as slaves to work in their own. So we should not, I would argue, idealise the achievements of ancient Greek civilization. The other thing I did want to emphasise in the book is I didn't actually give proportionately much longer space to the story of those two classical centuries 
as I did to other centuries of the same story. Because I think wherever we're coming from and whatever part of the story interests us most, it's really important to know, first of all, where that astonishing classical miracle came from. Secondly, what happened to all that impetus after it was over? And bound up with that latter story, what are the mechanisms by which those achievements and those writings, that learning, those ideas, came to exercise the influence that they do today all over the entire globe? That, if you like, is why I took the risk of calling my book a global history. I think you've just basically um, said my next three questions in your your last answer. I was very keen to ask you where you, you think this classical miracle did come from. Why was it specifically the Greeks or in this area that this foundational civilization arose about 2,500 years ago? Well, of course, the short answer is we, we don't know, but it's all the same. It's important to ask the question, I think. And... I, while I was doing the research for this book, I came up, I came across a whole series of ways in which people have attempted to answer that. For one thing, I think it's important that although the ancient, the Greeks of the classical period didn't directly have much access to their own past, we know through archaeology that a thousand years before their time, other Greek speakers had already created a complex society, or if you will, a civilization, in the same geographical area of the southern part of today's Greece and its islands. This came to the classical Greeks in the form of unwritten myths and legends. And of course, those stories are still with us today. These are the wonderful stories of, of the myths, the legends, the story of Troy, that um, some of the most popular and much-loved writers uh, of today in Britain are retelling and once again captivating today's audiences with. The Greeks had this heritage that came filtered through an oral tradition and the kind of aura of the, of the mystery of, uh, of a past of gods and heroes. They already had that in their kind of cultural DNA. And the other thing, probably more practically, that seems to have more than anything really affected the way in which Greeks organised their society, was this remarkable fact that they were great at seafaring. They built ships, they crewed ships, they captained them, they sailed them all across the Mediterranean. They sailed through the Sea of Marmara, past the Straits, into the Black Sea. But they didn't only trade goods with the people who lived there, they actually went set off on one-way voyages. And they set up, they probably were in practice trading posts, though they didn't tend to describe them that way. They set up trading posts on every coast that they could reach. And it seems to have been the case at this time that the people who lived in the hinterlands of today's Russia and Europe and North Africa were mostly not advanced or complex societies at all. And they didn't particularly have access to or the means to exploit the sea. The Greeks then arrived on their shores and they seem to have set up as middlemen, the literally the sort of entrepreneurs who take goods from the hinterland and put them on ships and sail them off to other parts of the Mediterranean. 
And I think this meant that they were part of a kind of thriving, if you like, early economy of the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. Later, they would come to be in competition um, more with other settlers, actually, than with the native populations of those uh, of those countries. But the world was so different in those days, it was actually possible to imagine just setting up, they're often called colonies, but they're not really colonies. They're settlements. They don't spread, they don't connect on the map. They're, all the connections are by sea. And they seem to have largely peaceful relations with the native population who lives further inland. The, and why all this matters, is that whether they lived at home in small isolated mountain valleys or islands, or whether they got on ships and set up these small settlements abroad, they were always obliged to organise their affairs in small communities. It was manageable. And they didn't, for whatever reason this came about, they didn't have hereditary monarchs, or an overriding religious authority that would be top-down and tell them how they had to do it. So I think you've got to imagine a couple of ships arriving on a deserted shore. You unpack, you set up your tents, you build your huts, and you start organising your affairs, you do a bit of farming, you do a bit of trading, and it's very much male-oriented in this. They are terrible male chauvinists, the ancient Greeks. But these men, They've got to work out how they're going to organise themselves in this strange place. And this seems to be how they worked out the system that eventually evolved into what we know, after many changes, as democracy. It's more complicated than that. But the basic principle, I think, you've got small, isolated communities. There's no one to tell them how to do it. There's no authority they can look up to or are cowed by. So they learn to argue among themselves, to talk among themselves, to argue the case, to work it out. And that, I think, is how all the other things, the achievements in the arts and sciences, kind of snowballed from those scattered beginnings. It's a process you couldn't probably predict from its early stages, but you can trace back through what actually happened. And then coming on to the second question that you you posed earlier, why does this classical civilization that scales such heights, why does it only last for a couple of centuries, really? Many people have uh, axes to grind or different ways of understanding that. I actually put it down to what I was saying earlier, to the inability of the Greek city-states to find a viable, sustainable way of working together in their mutual self-interest. If they could have created the ancient equivalent of the nation-state that we know as Greece today, it would, in the terms of the time, quite possibly have been sustainable, just as today's Greece is. But they kept up this endless warfare. They wore each other down. And it was almost inevitable that sooner or later, some military power stronger than them was going to move in and effectively just hoover up the lot of them, put them under its control. The Middle Eastern Empire of the Persians 
made a very good attempt at doing that at the beginning of the 5th century BCE. And the Greeks, some of the Greeks, by no means all, astonished themselves by fighting off the biggest empire that the world had yet seen. But there was also a warning there, which they didn't take. The next big competitor on the scene came from actually other Greeks. Greeks living to the north of them in the area that was then called, and still is, Macedonia. The Macedonians spoke Greek, but they never organised themselves in the small groups, the small organization of the city, the democratic kind of city-state. Macedonia was a kingdom, and it had a very strong military tradition. King Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great, was the first who really put ancient Macedonia on the map. He swallowed up the independent Greek city-states that were constantly at war with each other, and his, he first harnessed them all to make war on their eastern neighbour, Persia. Philip was assassinated before he was able to see through that project. It was his son, the young and totally extraordinary Alexander III, king of the Macedonians, who carried it through. And before he died at the age of 32, Alexander had conquered not just the Greek city-states, but the entire Middle East as far as northern India and the borders of the Caspian Sea. It was an extraordinary achievement, but it also marked the end of the classical civilization based on the classical city-states. It had a sequel, though, because Alexander, although by Greek standards his Macedonians were on the edge of barbarism, they weren't really properly civilized like the Greek city-states had been, but the language was Greek. So when they conquered all this land, the language that they took with them was the Greek language. And this was the beginning of the mechanism whereby peoples all over the known world who were not by birth or ge geographical origin in any sense Greek began to adopt the Greek language as their own. And that process has never really stopped since. And so you, you've just mentioned Alexander the Great and later on a lot of uh, Greek ideas and um, culture was also infused into the Roman Empire. So, I mean, to what extent do you think Greek language and culture have been spread at the point of the sword as opposed to just through the exchange of ideas and because of their brilliance? It's a very neat question, that. And what the story of the Romans shows is that the Greek language and Greek ideas and Greek culture were every bit as successfully spread to others through being conquered as through the Greeks themselves conquering others. In the long run, actually more so, because the, the Roman Republic, as it grew and grew and conquered more and more territories, it expanded into the areas that Alexander had once conquered, until by the time that the Roman Republic became the Roman Empire about the time of the historical uh, Jesus Christ and the beginning of Christianity. By that time, everyone anywhere in the world who spoke Greek as a first language with Greek education was also a subject of the Roman Empire. 
But the places in the Middle East that Alexander had conquered would later become part of another civilization, um, with the dominated by the Arabic language and later the Islamic religion. But it's in the West, where the Romans conquered the Greeks, that the Greek influence was the strongest and the most long-lasting. And it's rather fascinating. We don't quite know why it happened, but we can trace quite closely how it happened. As the Romans conquered all the peoples around them, they mostly imposed the Latin language, Roman laws, Roman religion, and all over Western Europe, certainly from the Atlantic coast of France to the uh, south of Spain and Italy, the languages that people speak today are directly descended from Latin. When the Romans conquered the Greek-speaking East, that didn't happen. Latin was only used and imposed at an official level. Imperial officials used Latin, the law was administered in, in Latin, the Roman legions functioned entirely in Latin. But the entire the population, something like 30, 40 million perhaps, subjects of the Roman Empire, east of the Adriatic and as far as the Euphrates in today's Middle East, those people spoke Greek. And the Romans, as they conquered these people, actually absorbed into their own culture, their own education, and their own system of values, a great deal that they took quite unashamedly and openly from the Greeks, so that Roman culture of the period of the Roman Empire is actually Greco-Roman. And that's the mechanism that really spreads Greek culture. So if it is spread by the sword, it's not Greek swords. It's first Macedonian swords. Um, they're Greek speakers, but they don't come from the Greek heartland. And then it's Roman swords, and they're definitely not Greek at all. But for hundreds of years, the smart Romans were busy learning Greek. And, you know, there's that wonderful scene in Shakespeare with Julius Caesar, where Cicero, the great orator, the great politician of ancient Rome, gets up and makes a speech. And Shakespeare has someone say, you know, what did he say? Oh, I don't know, sir. It was Greek to me. <laughs> the point being that the elite speaks Greek and writes in Greek. The ordinary citizens of Rome, of course, don't. But it becomes an elite thing. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I would argue that the Greek Revolution is the catalytic moment that set in motion the change of the European continent from that model of multi-ethnic empires to the model of nation-states. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. 
all the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This classical Greece obviously stands out as as a high point of Greek history. Have later Greek civilizations struggled to escape from the shadow of the classical period? Have their achievements always been weighed against those of the classical era? They certainly are today. I'm not sure during the thousand years of the Byzantine Empire, which is a Greek-speaking Christian empire with its capital at Constantinople, I'm not sure that they actually did think of themselves as inferior to the uh, the classical Greeks. They admired the classical Greeks for their language and their education, uh, many of their ideas, but uh, they absolutely distinguished themselves from the classical Greeks in terms of religion. And of course, the Byzantine Empire did succeed in that one thing that classical civilization has signally failed to do. The Byzantine Empire was a highly centralized, highly successful political system. So I don't think it did think itself inferior. The problem is that we think of it as inferior. And I think there is a, I'm not sure I can properly say this, but I think Greeks today um, who very much do look up to their classical forebears with a degree of awe as well as uh, pride, they tend to denigrate or downplay the achievements of the, their own Byzantine heritage and certainly the achievements of modern Greece since the creation of the Greek state. So it is really a matter of perspective. We've talked a few times about Christianity already, but I'd be interested to know how important you think the Greek influence was on both the development and the spread of Christianity. Christianity could not have become a world religion if it had not, if you like, piggybacked on the Greek language. So far as we know, Jesus and his disciples in Galilee spoke a language, a local language called Aramaic. It's related to ancient Hebrew, but it's not the same language. It had been the common language throughout the Persian Empire. But none of the Christian New Testament, so far as we know, was ever written down in that language. And as soon as the disciples of Jesus, shortly after the crucifixion, took the decision, or some of them took the decision, to spread the teaching of the leader beyond the local Aramaic-speaking communities that they belonged to themselves, they needed immediately to reach beyond the language barrier. And in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, where all of these people lived and died, the common language was Greek. So it was a no-brainer. The earliest texts of the Christian religion that we possess, that have survived, are the letters of the Apostle Paul. And his two letters that he wrote, one to the people of the province of Galatia in Anatolia, the other to the people of Corinth, the first letter to the Corinthians, these are, so far as we can tell, the very first Christian texts that exist. They were written round about the year 48 to 50 CE of the Common Era, that is, after the um, 
actual or supposed birth of Jesus. There's a question mark about the actual date. This is very early Christian writing, and they don't, these early Christian writings, they don't buy in very much to the ancient, to ancient Greek culture, but they use the language and they use the everyday form of communication in the Eastern Roman Empire, which is writing letters to, people write letters to each other, they are literate, but they're not at a very high level of literacy, they write as they speak, it's simple Greek, it's meant to be understood, it's being used as a vehicle. And thanks to those Christian writings, we have not only the teachings of Jesus preserved, we also have preserved a very close record of the kind of Greek that was used in everyday exchanges for communication, not to be admired, to be read in, in, school, in school rooms, but simply to get a message across, because that's what the early apostles were trying to do. Paul was the first. The Gospels, the stories obviously were known, and this is what Paul and others would have preached, presumably in Greek, but the actual written Gospels that we possess, they were all written in Greek, um, some 30 or 40 years later, towards the end of the first century CE. And the entire corpus of the New Testament, the entire corpus of Christian uh, uh, Holy Scripture was written in the Greek language. Greek was the means to disseminate a message, uh, a moral and a religious message, which was, of course, very deeply rooted in the ancient Hebrew traditions, in many ways actually totally alien to a lot that was current in the Greek educational curriculum at the time. And it was in the Greek language that during the first century, while Christianity was being forged as the world religion that it became, that Christian ideas rooted in the Hebrew tradition came to be fused and amalgamated with ideas as well as that very basic form of expression, the Greek language. It couldn't have been done without it. Now, I expect many people who are listening, their knowledge of Greek history might have a few blank centuries, particularly around the late medieval and early modern periods. But are there any really important milestones for Greek history in that period that you think people should be aware of? Well, first of all, I don't blame your listeners. It's a very tangled story. And the years after the heyday of, I mean, Constantinople, the Byzantine Empire really reached its peak in the 11th and 12th centuries, the time when Western Europe was really just beginning to emerge from the, the Dark Ages. And then it, it has a very slow decline. It's attacked and it's taken over first by the West, by the Crusades from the West, and then by the Islamic Ottoman Empire, under which most Byzantines, uh, Greeks lived for several hundred, uh, hundred years. It's a very tangled story, but it's also one in which almost all Europeans, wherever we come from, uh, our ancestors had some kind of finger in the in the pie, because these were these were years of an extraordinary melting pot. Um, in the um, late 11th century, during the 12th century, you got this movement known as the Crusades, where whereby Western Christians were inspired um, to wage war against the um, against Islam, to reclaim the holy places of the Christian religion. And the Greek-speaking Byzantine Empire was effectively caught right in the middle 
in this clash between East and West. The Byzantines tried to play off the rising powers of the West um, for their, to bolster their own empire. But at the end, they did a very, dare I say, a very Greek thing. The Byzantines ended up falling out among themselves. The Byzantine Empire, it's often said it was destroyed by the Fourth Crusade, which in 1204 um, actually turned aside from its purpose of the its goal of the Holy Land and turned against Constantinople. And the knights of the uh, from all over Europe, led by the Republic of Venice, actually sacked and destroyed Constantinople and they looted uh, the city. But it was that was only possible because the empire for the previous several decades had been breaking away. People had been breaking away from it. Um, in a rather strange way, it was Greek speakers almost reverting to the type of Greek speakers from a much earlier period, preferring local autonomy rather than buying into a centralised empire. And that really is how they lost out first to the, as I say, to the Crusaders who dominated the uh, Middle East and uh, Southeastern Europe for several hundred years, and then to the Ottoman uh, Ottoman Turks. So these, in a short answer to your question, uh, the big events in that history after the heyday of Constantinople in the 11th to 12th centuries are the Crusades from the 11th to the 14th century, and then the expansion of the Ottoman Turks, the enormous Ottoman Empire, which finally in 1453 conquered Constantinople and actually re-established the old Greek-speaking capital once again as the capital of a world empire, which this time was uh, it, its official language was Ottoman Turkish, its religion was Islam, but it was also uh, a multi-faith, multi-ethnic empire in which there was a place for the Orthodox Christian religion and the Greek speakers who practiced it, so that actually Greek speakers were able in to find many inventive and very varied ways to flourish even under during centuries of, if you like, captivity. And you've already alluded a couple of times to the bicentenary this year of Greek independence in 1821. How big a juncture is that in the story of Greek history? It's a massive one. And it does puzzle me, it distresses me slightly that there's been, I mean, everybody in Greece and Greeks all over the world have, despite the limitations of the pandemic this year, they've really gone to town with trying to mark this 200th anniversary in every conceivable way they can think of. And I think it is quite justly marked in Greece as an opportunity after 200 years to think, well, you know, what have we achieved? What did we get right? What could have been done better? And I think it's a real sort of moment for a leap forward to lay the foundations for the next century and two centuries. But what distresses me a bit is that it's barely been marked outside Greece. Um, I was delighted to see just yesterday that there is, uh, the rest of this year, there is an exhibition devoted to this at the Louvre in Paris. There's nothing like that in any British institution uh, that I know of, um, except, uh, and I must fly a flag here, for the University of Edinburgh, with which, as it happens, I am uh, working at the moment. And there is an exhibition at the University of Edinburgh which commemorates links between the Scottish capital and the creation of Athens as a capital city out of the Greek 
revolution. But generally, it actually is a far more important landmark in European, perhaps even in world history, than people outside the kind of usual suspects of uh, Greeks and their friends really realize. Because until middle of the 19th century, the mainland Europe was dominated by multi-ethnic, multi-language, sometimes multi-faith empires. The Russian Empire was the Tsar, the Habsburg Empire, the Austrian Empire, and there was the Ottoman Empire. And today, instead, Europe consists of the network of independent uh, nation-states that we know, some of whom collaborate in the collaborative project of the European Union. But the basis of modern Europe is the nation-state. What brought about that change? I argue the Greek revolution that was fought against the Ottomans during the 1820s, but with significant and important support and help, first from individuals from all over Europe, and indeed from America, and latterly, even from, somewhat unwillingly, from the governments of the great powers of Europe. I would argue that the Greek Revolution is the catalytic moment that set in motion the change of the European continent from that model of multi-ethnic empires to the model of nation-states. Greece was recognised first as a fully independent state as a nation in 1830. It was followed by Belgium in 1831. But the big, the famous landmark creations of new nations in the European continent came a generation or more later. The famous unifications of Germany and Italy during the 1860s, completed in 1871. Nation states become a snowballing process during the second half of the 19th century. And it's a process that we still see happening today. Look at the states created after the breakup of Yugoslavia and look at the nationalist movements we see in various parts of Europe. Um, think of Catalonia, think of, for example, Scotland. And then subsequent to independence, what kind of place has Greece had in modern European history? Has it tended to be overpowered or overshadowed by some of these big players such as Germany, Italy, Britain and France? Yes. The, the great achievement of the Greek Revolution was to win by law recognition as fully independent. The practical reality of being an independent state of fewer than one million people at the beginning, with a land area which was only the southern part of today's Greece and some of the Aegean islands. The reality of that situation was you were bound to be squeezed by the great powers. And for the first century of its existence, it was also overshadowed and threatened by the still powerful and still enormously much larger Ottoman Empire. And indeed, the strained relations that exist today between Greece and Turkey are a legacy of that uh, situation, though it's worth also throwing in the observation that during the intervening 200 years, those relations have not always been strained. It is perfectly possible for Greeks and Turks to find ways of finding common ground. They have a lot actually culturally in common. But uh, once again, in recent years, issues over the seabed and 
plans for prospecting for oil, uh, control of airspace, have raised tensions uh, once, uh, once again. What am I saying? On the one hand, full independence often never quite meant all of that. And Greeks, from their point of view, would sometimes feel rather resentful that outsiders felt they could interfere in their affairs, and they sometimes quite blatantly did. And from the other point of view, for the, the larger or more influential powers in Europe, and now globally, a small nation-state is never quite going to have the weight or the traction or the leverage of bigger ones. So during the Cold War, America always uh, looked to Turkey as the main bulwark of NATO against the Soviet Union, rather than much smaller Greece, although Greece uh, joined that alliance in 1951 and remains a very important part of it. So a lot of people in uh, Britain, Europe, and I suppose other parts of the West today do hark back to their ancient Greek heritage and, and ancient Greece as being a kind of foundational moment in Western history, which it undoubtedly was. But do you think occasionally there's a danger that means that ancient Greece is idealised and also that some other cultures are perhaps ignored, some of the Asian cultures such as uh, the Persians, for example? Well, that's that's part of it. Um, I suppose since my own interest and my own focus is on the Greek world, which does cover an awful lot of different things, I suppose the emphasis I would put on this is, if you like, wanting to encourage diversifying our interest and understanding of Greek culture and what goes with it. So I would like to see the classical achievement more integrated with, as I was saying before, its prehistoric forebears, its later role in the formation of Christianity, in the um, remarkable achievements and the power and the wealth of the world empire that we call Byzantium during the Middle Ages. That's a very neglected part of European and indeed of world history. And the Byzantines, they were trading, they were sending embassies, they were sending missionaries as far as Western China. There's a, there's a famous gravestone of a Christian who was buried in somewhere in Western China in about the 7th century CE, um, who'd actually got there overland from Constantinople. They were networked into all the world networks that uh, were accessible to them. They were, for a long time, they were trading right through the Mediterranean and um, through the Red Sea and into Southeast Asia as well. I think it's a mistake to set off ancient Greek civilization and distinguish it from other world civilizations. It is one of many civilizations that the world has known. And I think there's a lot to be said for looking at where there are interactions, looking at the nature of those uh, interactions, rather than seeing them as split off. I mean, the Incas, the Maya, uh, the Aztecs, there is you can only look at parallels because there really was no human contact at all during those periods across the Atlantic. But in what we still perhaps quaintly call the old world, there were connections, there were trade routes. Um, this is 
you know, the story of the Silk Roads, after all. People were getting out and about. I think that a lot could yet be done to look at ways in which ancient Greek civilization may actually have interacted with um, ancient Persian, uh, ancient Chinese. And we do know that actually the, the medieval Islamic civilization of the Middle East and southern Spain, that actually also was deeply imbued with Greek science. The um, highly cultured uh, minds of Damascus and Baghdad and Granada um, and Cordoba in Spain, they were not so much engaged with the political ideas or the literary imagination of the ancient Greeks, but they loved the science. A lot of what we know about the science of optics, astronomy, medicine, uh, the mathematics, it was the Muslim world that preserved a lot of that from ancient Greece and then made their own contributions to it. Uh, algebra is a branch of mathematics invented by in the Arab tradition, uh, unknown to the Greeks. But I'm not sure even that would have been possible if they hadn't already imbibed the geometry of the ancient Greeks and developed their own system of counting from it. So I think the interaction of civilizations is more fruitful, more interesting in a way, than focusing, than isolating civilizations and saying, we all owe everything to one group of people, one corner of the Earth's crust. When you look at history in the long term, as I've been trying to do in the wonderful time I had writing this book, it really opens your eyes to how much People are constantly interacting with one another. And thank goodness they're not only and always just fighting, although sadly they do an awful lot of that too. And you've spoken already about some of the legacies of Greek history and civilization around the world. I wonder if you could point to some of the perhaps more surprising or unexpected ways that uh, Greek civilization influences the modern world. Well, some of them aren't very unexpected. A lot of the words we use today... Um, a huge amount of medical techni uh, technical vocabulary actually is uh, is Greek, and uh, that's one thing. That's a kind of uh, kind of given. Other ways, think of architecture. Um, the so-called Greek revival of the late nineteenth century, but on every continent you can find buildings, particularly public buildings with porticos and pillars, which to varying extents and varying the imitative or inventive, recreate and perpetuate that the buildings, the buildings that the ancient Greeks devised and put up in order to honor and worship their gods. You can find buildings, you know, New Delhi is neoclassical, Washington DC is neoclassical. Uh, the city plans of Melbourne and Adelaide in Australia are follow a grid pattern that was revived in the 18th and early 19th century, but it's a grid pattern that was first spread around the world by the Macedonians who followed Alexander the Great, and it was first devised on the island of Lesbos, where the refugees are arriving today, by a man called Hippodamus, who was a Greek speaker in the 5th century CE. So it reaches into odd corners, 
to say nothing of the more modern culture, uh, where would we be without our moussaka or our halloumi or our, the yogurt that you can buy all over the world and is made in in Greece? Not all of these are Greek inventions, by the way. Um, uh, the first is Middle East and Cypriot, the second is Turkish, but we think of them as Greek, and it's Greeks and Greek chefs and Greek entrepreneurs have really put, uh, branded them. And the last one, which you can speculatively run all the way back to the myths of Jason and the Argonauts and Odysseus on his ship, struggling to find his way back from Troy to his island home of Ithaca. Greeks, Greek ship owners, apparently own the largest share of world cargo shipping of any single identifiable, in quotes, national group in the world. It's something like 17% of world cargo shipping is Greek-owned. And I did just a statistical check. That is approximately 100 times the proportion of the Greek population as a proportion of the world's population. The Greeks have really made their mark in shifting goods by sea around the world. They were doing it 3,000 years ago. They're still preeminent at doing it. That was Roderick Beaton. The Greeks, A Global History is out now, published by Faber. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Islam Issa will be speaking about the unexpected connections between Shakespeare and terrorism. Music